So we've come to the last message in our series, talking about these, these paradoxes, these, these moments that, uh, that we come to in our ministry, that, that we have to choose something, and, and the temptation is there to, to choose things to, to be easier in one way, to accomplish a goal that, that end up being counterproductive. We started talking about being all in, and what that, that means. Jesus instructing his disciples... Uh, on the objectives that end up taking us off course. And we followed that up by discussing three shortcuts. And then uh, last week talking about three wedges uh, that motivate us and when uh, faced with these choices. And I want to look at this series just a little bit different. Really, if you, if you go back and look at each of these messages, we've talked about all three in each message. Um, every sermon has talked about compromise and wedges and, and shortcuts, really. That's, that's every message that we've, we've done. Um, to, today's message was going to wrap up, but a little bit differently. What we've done so far is we've taken a text and we've kind of gone through really in detail into one text. We're going to skip around a little bit. Um, and um, we're going to start off in a point where we, we began um, in, in our first sermon, uh, but we are going to roam around. And, and it, turn to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 8. And so this is going to be a little bit familiar to you. Verse 38, actually I'll drill that up there for you. Um, we're going to be talking about the sacrifice of doctrinal integrity. Mark 8, 38 says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, him uh, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so uh, Jesus addressed this, and he had to address this because he knew that his message wasn't extremely popular. Um, we have, as humanity, we have the desire to be on the winning side, right? Uh, one person wearing their Packer gear this morning, right? <laughs> right? Uh, we just like to win, right? Now, in three or four weeks, however that is going to be, well, whoever's going to end up winning, the next day, there's going to be fans of that team that were always fans of that team. Right? I think by now there's millions of people that had been at the Ice Bowl. That's kind of what they say. The, the, the joke is that millions of people were, well, no, there weren't. But it was a popular thing, and, and, and in retrospect, it was such this, this great event, you know, I, I, I would never brag about that, but, you know, freezing your hindquarters off in, the, in a dumb stadium watching football, that's, that seems nuts to me. But, but, but it was such a, a great moment for people that, that people that were never there claimed to be there. Oh, yeah, I was there at the Ice Bowl. Wow, you and millions of others. Packed into that small stadium of like 50,000 people. Crazy. We want to be on the winning side. And so, so there comes a point where we, when faced with pressures, we are willing sometimes to sacrifice doctrinal integrity. We're going to look at one and we're going to illustrate this with one topic. I'm going to read this. We're not going to dwell on this 
too much uh, throughout the sermon, but I am going to read one chapter of the Bible, and I want this is we're going to refer to this a number of times, and it's Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form; it was void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God said, let there be light. There was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness, he called night. It was uh, evening, and then morning, and that was the first day. God said, let there be a firmament in the middle of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. So God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. The gathering together of the waters he called seeds. And God saw that it was good. So then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening And the morning were the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made also the stars. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and the night to divide light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of creatures, and let birds fly in the earth, above the earth, across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures, and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abound according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and seas and let the birds multiply upon the earth so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, uh, cattle, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Let them have dominion over fish and birds and cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields uh, seed that's on the face of the earth, every tree whose Fruit yields seed, it will be food for you. 
Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. God saw everything he made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. We're not going to go detailing through this. I just wanted to read it. This is the opening opus of this Bible. This book that God gave us, this is how God said, I want to begin. I'm going to tell man of his relationship with me. And this is how I want to start it. And that's important. It's not an accident. And God had an eternity up to this moment to contemplate what his first words to mankind were going to be. And this is what he came up with. That's important. So I want to talk about the sacrifice of doctrinal integrity. And we're going to talk about catch-22 of evasion today. A different type of compromise. And I want to talk about uh, a distinction without a difference. You know what a distinction without a difference is when two people fight over words and really when it comes down to it, they really are saying the same thing. And, and people want, well, to be really clear about this, you need to use this word. Well, it's the same, it means the same thing. You're saying the same thing. And so it is often pointed out, we get into discussions of the origin of man and that there is a difference between the origin of man, the age of the earth, and the development of humanity or race, whatever, existence, life. These are different things. And that is technically true. There is a distinction, but there is a distinction really without a difference. And I'm going to explain why? These things are treated like the, the Chinese buffet, where you can pick what you want. I, I really don't like the coconut shrimp, but, but I, I like the beef broccoli. Okay. And people treat it like, I, well, I can, I can have a little origin of the earth over here and talk about this one, but I, I'm going to have a, a, a different idea on the, the age of the earth and, and, and on the, how things develop. And, and I, can, I can kind of pick and choose. And we need to look at the history of this because there is an intrinsic connection to these three. They are inseparable. You can pretend. But this is the evasion. We need to talk about deism. Deism is the idea that God was really more connected with nature. Not really so much with man. That, that God made nature and let nature interact with man. That's deism. That, that God just decided one day that he was bored, apparently, and made stuff and said, okay, that's fine. That was fun. I'm going to do something else. And, and I don't really interact with what I made anymore. That was convenient for a lot of people. 
And uh, that, that occurred in the late, mid, mid to late 1700s. That was kind of a, a popular thing. Philosophically, it was heralded by a man by the name of Voltaire, who in, influenced philosophy and, and, and other courses of learning in France and then throughout Europe, even in the United States. Men like Benjamin Franklin went and, uh, and listened to Voltaire. And, and came back and said things, well, I really don't think that God cares about worship. That was a statement by Benjamin Franklin. Um, another man around the same time was a man by the name of Lamarck. He was a deist. And he championed both the, the idea of the ancient earth and what we would call macroevolution. Where, where things come from, from primitive creatures up to you and me now. These were both tied together. And they are both tied together in deism, which is the first step away from God. It didn't take long for people to get completely away from God. This was just, this was just the move that had to be made, right? Right? When you're getting ready to do a big thing, you try to do a small thing to make it easy to get there. It's a transition. It makes you feel comfortable. You get acclimated to it. And so the French Revolution comes along shortly after Voltaire is dead. And by this time, people are moving into full-blown atheism. They, made, they got themselves used to it. And now we just take the natural step and get rid of God altogether. They changed calendars so that there would be, so that the Christians wouldn't know what day Sunday was on. It made a ten day ten day week, and uh, they they got rid of all the uh, anything that had religious references and calendars and all anything. Just get rid of it all. They tried to change the the, the year so it didn't reference Christ, and they tried to do everything. To illustrate that these are directly connected to atheism and the scientific movement. They, they started what was called the age of reason. This is science. And they had a goddess of reason. They marched her through the streets on this exalted platform and brought her right into what they, they were trying to get rid of, religion, they marched her into Notre Dame Cathedral and sat her in the bishop's chair. I couldn't care less about the bishop's chair in Notre Dame, just so we're clear. But this was important to them. This is what they viewed as personifying Christianity. She was a prostitute. An ordinary prostitute. And they wanted to defile Christianity. And this is connected to deism, and this is connected to Lamarck and Voltaire and evolution and everything in the age of the earth. It is all inseparably connected. <coughs> you cannot pick and choose. It was all done to get rid of God. All of it. They needed that. I want to talk about the erosion of resolve. That didn't last long. 
um, Robespierre, about two years later, found his own head missing on his own weapon of destruction. And Napoleon, a fierce Catholic, brought back Christianity, or some version of it. This time the Bible was finally allowed to, to spread throughout the world without the reins of Catholicism controlling it. It was the one difference with Napoleon. And we have the, a movement that spreads both in the United States and uh, in, the, in the 1800s and across Europe. There, there is revival, but it doesn't... It, so, so to understand where I'm going with this, this it doesn't seem like resolve would erode at this point because we're still winning. Lamarck is buried in a pauper's grave. No one cared. No one knew who he was. Robespierre died in disgrace. It's over. But their views, Voltaire and Lamarck are within a few years being repositioned a half a century after the, the French Revolution, Karl Marx writes his book, Charles Darwin writes his books, and they start to gain a little popularity, not a lot at first. We're still winning. It's easy to still believe the Bible because revolutions in Europe didn't win, not in 1848 anyway. It's going to come. We have to wait for another half century yet after that. For that to take, for the political aspect to take, take place in Europe and Russia and, and across the East. And we have to even wait more till the mid-1900s for really for Darwin's ideas to really gain a foothold. But they do. And it's here. It's at this point that Christianity goes, hmm. There's kind of a a wavering as it's gaining popularity now. And universities are starting to teach this. The smart people are starting to teach this stuff. And we start to forget where it comes from and what it's directly connected to. The only important thing is how popular it seems to be and, and what great weight of of. of the smart elite people with all their degrees seem to be championing it. Oh, we dismissed it 200 years ago when we were winning. But now we don't seem to be winning. And so... We start, we read a verse and we go, hmm, this seems hard to get around. All scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice those highlighted words all seem to have something in common. God doesn't make a lot of exceptions. All. Scripture 
And so we can, I, I, I don't, that's inconvenient to me. So I need a vehicle to get me to where I want to be if I'm going to get around this verse. And so I ask some questions. These are three evasions that we make on our way to getting where we want to be on the majority. I like to be on the majority side, so I've got to get there. Well, we've already read that. Does inspiration mean that there are no errors? We, first of all, I want to talk about inspiration. It's a bad translation. You can still read it. It's fine. It's not inspired. The word is expired. Of course, I guess that sounds bad. Because expire sounds like it died. It means exhaled, really. It's breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. Genesis 1 was breathed out by God. We read that verse. That section of verses. That chapter. Does that sound like God didn't know what he wanted to communicate? And it was so. And it was so. And it was exactly like this. That's what that means. And it was exactly like this. Then God said, and it happened. Just like this. God knew what he wanted us to say. Does it mean that there's no errors? Well, let's talk about that. People have for centuries, millennia, tried to point out contradictions in the scriptures. Most of the ones that you'll hear are old. Old, old. Ancient old. Like the first couple of centuries of Christianity old. They were dismissed back then, men like Marcion and, and various ones. And it was easy back then. And they just keep getting recycled and regurgitated. Just as a practical thing. You hear something and go, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. There, there's some, the, the technology is good. There's a, a site called Apologetics Press. You've never heard of it. You just go in there and you put a search in. You're like, okay, what's this? This is, I've heard someone at work said this. And there will be, I mean, a thesis on the subject. Someone's heard it, likely. And I've even, I've, I've gone there and said, uh, it. I, I couldn't find it in an article, so I emailed them, and they, they, they sent me something. I mean, I was like, wow. I mean, this stuff has been, it's been around. They've got nothing new. Most of the contradictions that you'll find, there's like a misspelling or a number that, that got mistranslated or something. I mean, they're not really substantive Contradictions at all. They have easy explanations. If you want to read all the scriptures together. Of course, all scripture is inspired. When we start looking at things that the scripture agrees. When I stand before God. If this topic arises. I do not want to stand there telling God 
any of the following. I do not want to have questioned God's ability to influence people to say exactly what he wanted. Yeah, but I didn't think that you had that ability. I mean, when you said inspiration. I thought it meant just kind of a suggestion. Just sort of in the general vicinity. I do not want to tell God that he did not have the ability to protect or to preserve the authenticity of the words he just breathed out. Seems like a God who could do that in the first place could protect it so that it would say thousands of years later exactly what he had wanted it to say in the first place. And I don't want to say especially that a God could inspire that or expire that through men, could protect it, but didn't have the ability to see scientific quote-unquote discovery thousands of years later and breathe his words out accordingly. I'm not going to tell God that. You can. I'm not. I want to keep in mind our illustration, and I want to look at some passages here. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. This is Hebrews. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord. It was attested to those who heard while God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts and the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's talking about the law. The law was written by Moses. I want to dwell on Moses specifically for the remainder. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was accepted that Moses' writings were vital and reliable. And so therefore, even more so, Christ's. That's the comparison. That's always the comparison of Hebrews. Moses versus Christ. If we accept Moses as this, then how much more so Christ? It's built on the foundation of Moses being absolutely reliable. That... If that's not the, the fundamental thing, then the whole comparison of Hebrews, the whole premise of Hebrews breaks down. It's structured on Christ being reliable because he's greater than Moses, who is absolutely reliable. Jesus affirms this. He says, you search the scriptures because you conclude that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness of me. Do you do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. He wrote of me, but do not believe his writings. Well, then how will you believe my words? He is saying, what in the world are you doing? You're not going to be able to believe me if you can't accept Moses. Moses is right. Moses is reliable. Not just in Exodus. Not just starting from chapter 2 of Genesis. 
Moses is reliable. So we come to the next evasion. Does inspiration mean that there are no metaphors? Obviously, that's ridiculous. Of course, there's metaphors. The Bible's full of metaphors. It's called prophecy. Prophecy is metaphor. I want to look at something. There are some parts of the scripture that are safe for me to think what I want. Right? That's, that's what this is an attempt to say. There are parts of the scripture, since it's a metaphor, where I can conclude what I want and you can't touch me. Safe. And so I want this. So, so can't we just pretend that this is a metaphor where I'm free to say what I want to say? Well... Let's look at Moses. There's a rebellion with his sister and his brother. He's married a black woman. That didn't sit well with them. So they lead a rebellion. That's the pre, the backstory to this. So God gets a little irritated with Moses and Aaron. So he talks to him. And he says, Hear my words. If there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. But not so with Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, face to face. Clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Genesis 1 is not a metaphor. Because that's not how God communicated to Moses. Prophets, yes. When God said, and it was so, he said, it is so. When God said, then he said, then he said. That's what that means. There are metaphors. What's Jesus' opinion on the subject? I always like to go back to Jesus and see what Jesus said about these things. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So therefore, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, you can go a lot of directions with this, as you can see. You could, just not a big thing back then, but Jesus phrases it in a way where it's suddenly applicable thousands of years later when people are trying to come up with new discoveries in our culture. Suddenly this, have you not read? Can I just go back and read what Moses said? It's pretty simple. Jesus trusts Moses as 100% accurate and literally reliable. Jesus quotes him. Not a metaphor. Now I want you to notice something about this. That, that's where your attention is drawn to the male and female part of this. 
But I want you to draw your attention. He says, from the beginning of creation. In other words, Adam and Eve didn't come back millennia and millennia later. Adam and Eve are close in proximity to the beginning of creation. Jesus said it. If you want to fight with it, you can take it up with him. So I'm not, I, I'm not going to get up there and say, well, Jesus, well, I thought that was just a metaphor. I will not be made. And I'm going to explain why. We're almost done here. I want to look at one-third evasion. Is every inspired statement important? And this, again, goes back to that trying to get to a point where I can say what I want to say. Well, there are certainly statements in the scriptures that are more vital and directly connected to something. That's true. There are certainly statements that are weighted. Jesus weighted statements. The first and greatest command is this, and the second is like to it. Jesus weighted statements. There are weighted statements. Remember then, uh, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but just ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who needs not need be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this is a warning. It's a warning for a reason, because all scripture, what we just read, is used for Christian development. All scripture, remember when he writes this, they only had access to an Old Testament. And they used that from, from Genesis 1 on up through Malachi. They, they used that to develop Christian character. Is every inspired statement important? Yes. Yes, it is. God had an eternity to think about what he wanted to tell man. He started with one thing. This is actually, for, for all the divine things, if you think of all the divine pieces of information that there are in the world, John wrote that, that just the events of Jesus, all the books in the, in, the, in the world could not contain just the things that Jesus did. Forget all the, we're not even talking about all the divine ideas and concepts of God. And God says, I'm going to select a handful of statements and I'm going to put them in a book that size. Somebody got to get that slimline Bible that I can't read. It's about like, it's like, it's like that. It looks like that. It's the sort of same stuff, but it's, it's small. And God says, I'm going to put it right there. And he had an eternity to think and select and pick what he was going to put in there. And this is what he came up with. Is it all important? Yes, it's all important. To one degree or another, it's all important. It's important then how we use it and divide it and interpret it. We don't get to pick what I want. My daughter was cooking. This is several years ago. And she was looking at the recipe. And uh, it didn't turn out quite. It was very, very salty. Well, there's a difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon. It's a big tea, little tea. But that's an important detail. This is several years ago. I mean several years ago. So 
busy on. How we read things can have dramatic, little things can have big influences. And so we talk about a catch-22. This catch-22. And here's the paradox. Here's here's the the opposite. You're trying to attain something in it. and, and, And what's the motive in ministry to make these evasions? I want to make myself believable. See? Really, in Genesis, there's only two... In all of Moses' writings, there's only two really unbelievable things that we go, oh, man, the flood and creation, that's it. Those are the two that we go, I mean, there's other stories that are... But, I mean, if you, if you can get past those two, you can pretty much accept anything else. And so I want to make myself acceptable to people who criticize that. And here's the problem. Is if I try to make myself believable to those people, I eventually make myself unbelievable. Why? Because I sacrifice my integrity. If I don't have confidence in some difficult statements, and I, I give up there, and I, I hedge, and I pull back, well, I've lost all credibility. And they know it. They know I've given up. So when I teach them other hard things, they're going to go, wait a minute. I'm not sure I should really trust you. that tendency to treat everything as metaphor, where do I stop? Well, maybe this is a metaphor. God expects you to, to do this particular behavior or, or to give... How do you know that? That's not a metaphor. See, I've already established metaphor with them. So I can't really give that up. Well, that's not really important. Well, wait a minute. Over here, you said that wasn't important. Now you're telling me this is important. How do I know that that's important? See, it's a catch-22. I did it to try to pull them in, but now they're going to reject everything else I have to say. Catch-22. Don't buy into it. This is a crazy thing. This is the the catch-22. If I cannot believe in a flood, if I cannot believe that God made things in six days, that's not the hardest thing to believe in the Bible. My entire faith is premised on the idea that a man who was God died, suffered a number of lethal injuries, was then started into the mummification process, placed in a very unsanitary location with no food and water for three days, Sealed, not good air, not, as I say, not sanitary. No medical treatment whatsoever. And emerged three days later, whole, well. And that's the gospel. That is the hardest thing to believe in the Bible. And that is the foundation of what 
everything we're here for this morning. We had a ceremony about it. If I can believe this, six days, no problem. Flood, no problem. Any any story, no problem. That's the catch-22. This is the easiest. These things that we've talked about. This is the hardest. That's the easiest stuff. And the catch-22 is, if I give up on those easy ones, I will not convince people on the stuff that is weighted, is vital, and is the hardest thing. Stick to your guns. Believe Moses. Christ believed Moses. 